Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM, broadcasting live from our studios in Tampa, Florida. This is WMNF's Global Affairs Show that's focusing on the Arab and Muslim world. Um, my co-host Summer and I host this show every week. We've actually been doing it for, what, 15 years, but we've always been on Fridays. Now we're on Thursdays, I guess, for a year now. Um, so if you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a longtime supporter, thank you. Thank you for your support. Obviously, we uh, depend on your support to continue our show. Uh, on today's program, we're going to be speaking about the World Cup, the first ever World Cup to take place in the Arab world, in the Middle East, and it's happening in Doha, Qatar. The final is actually going to be this Sunday, and it's been a World Cup like no other. Um, however, getting here has uh, been a journey, and it's also been wrapped in a lot of controversy. Leading up to right before this World Cup was launched, there was a blitz campaign of uh, attacks on the World Cup and how it was so corrupt and why is it being held in Qatar, an Arab country that's tiny. Um, so we're going to be actually speaking to a um, an author and a professor, uh, Abdullah Laryan, who will be on the show today to talk about an article he wrote in the New York Times, why it's um, it was important to have the World Cup in Qatar and to discuss uh, basically how it's going because he's also he's actually joining us from Doha, Qatar, where he's been attending some of the games. We'll be right back. This is True Talk on WMNF.
Welcome to True Talk on, uh, welcome back to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Summer. Uh, we're speaking about the World Cup. That was actually the uh, FIFA World Cup official song. Hiya, hiya. There's actually a couple of other songs. There's one called the official fan anthem, um, which has a, an, an interesting thing uh, on there. Um, like I said, I'm going to be joined, or I am joined by Abdullah Laryan. He's an author and professor uh, at Georgetown in Doha, Qatar. And he actually wrote an article for the New York Times that says, why Qatar deserves to host the World Cup, actually. And um, the uh, opinion or the op-ed goes on to say, when uh, FIFA announced the um, in 2010 that Qatar would host this year's World Cup, football fans and sports pundits were left scratching their heads. Qatar, it said, uh, again and again, had no real business hosting the tournament. The weather is too hot. There aren't enough stadiums. The country doesn't even have a halfway decent football team. And, of course, there was the question of who would be building the sites for the games and under what conditions. As a regretful regretful former FIFA president would uh, who had announced that Qatar's winning the bid 12 years ago, said recently of the country, quote, football and the World Cup are too big for it, end quote. Um, so welcome to True Talk, Abdullah Laryan. Uh, good to be with you. You're joining us from Doha, Qatar, where this is all happening, right? I am, yes. I'm, I'm here in the, in the thick of it. <laughs> So uh, before we talk about what the World Cup has been like, uh, what motivated you to write this article? I mean, you're, uh, uh, I guess, a professor of history. Um, you have written articles and books, uh, and you specialize in Islamic movements and Middle East history. Uh, so why uh, write about sports and especially the World Cup? Yeah, no, I mean, this has been a long time coming in a way, obviously, as, as on one hand, being a lifelong uh, football fan, a fan of the, of the game, having followed it, you know, from childhood, um, but also over the years, seeing the way that it intersects with so many different aspects of life, you know, culture, politics, society, economics um, in this region in particular, and then seeing the way that that gets so often dismissed outside of this region that people don't necessarily see those connections. And so I've been kind of writing about this um, really since the 2018 World Cup. I began kind of writing, um, you know, some kind of analytical pieces looking at sort of what was happening on the ground uh, among some of the teams, among some of the kind of the identity politics that were on display in Russia. Um, but then also over the last three years, the Center for International Regional Studies uh, commissioned a what they call a working group where they bring together a collection of scholars. It was, I think, initially something like 15 scholars coming together to talk about football in the Middle East in particular, seeing various ways that, um, you know, Qatar hosting the World Cup, of course, is, is a conversation starter. And it's a way for people who've been doing this research um, to be able to pursue it. And we ended up actually producing a book that I edited called Football in the, in the Middle East, State Society and the Beautiful Game. Um, that has 12 chapters, each of which kind of takes a different question or a different element of either the history of the game or its current manifestation, seeing how it's it's um, not just in, in the case of the Qatar World Cup and all the questions that it's raised, but also thinking about things like, you know, the struggle for women in Iran, something that, of course, many people are following now, 
um, but looking at you know the struggle for women to to gain access to football stadiums, mm. or thinking, for instance, about you know the history of the Egyptian league and seeing the way that you know politics has been completely intertwined in football uh, in Egypt, going all the way back to the colonial era and the era for the struggle for independence, or thinking, for instance, about the the plight of Palestinians as refugees in Lebanon uh, who are deprived from. Um, you know, basically being able to play the game in the Lebanese leagues because of all of these different restrictions against them. So there's a lot of other kinds of questions that are pursued in this book, in addition to all of the kind of the big picture questions about, you know, the World Cup and, and the implications of it being held in, in Qatar and in an Arab country for the first time. So there is also, and I want to play a little clip in a moment, um, that kind of just shows or highlights some of the attacks on Qatar and what some people are pointing out as Western hypocrisy. Because, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this in, and you mention it, some of these in your um, op-ed in the New York Times, um, uh, the you know avalanche of attacks by pundits and media outlets um, leading up to the World Cup. I mean, it just seemed, I mean, we heard a lot of this before, but did it surprise you the amount of articles and media attention um, that all of a sudden, you know, were coming and directed at Qatar um, in the weeks and, and uh, before the World Cup, um, especially focusing on issues like uh, worker rights, human rights, uh, LGBT rights, etc.? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the interesting things, of course, is that none of this is, is new in the sense that all of these reactions were present immediately after the announcement back in, in very late 2010. You know, there was this kind of initial rush of, um, you know, critique of raising a lot of these issues, maybe doing it in, in kind of really hyperbolic ways, sensationalist ways. Um, the kinds of language that was used at, even at that point often evoked, you know, a certain kind of Orientalist view of the region, thinking about the Middle East as a place being super, you know, um, <clears throat> unfit to be able to host something like this sort of tournament. Um, and it was purely based on a kind of a cultural basis, but also thinking about the practices that you're talking about as being things that are distinct to this region um, and sort of seeing the labor practices, the kafala system in particular being highlighted. What is um, the kafala kind of system? Yeah, the kafala system is the labor governance structure that exists in most of the GCC. So the Gulf countries going back to the colonial era when you know the British were basically trying to preserve their own interests and at the same time kind of secure um, the territories that they had basically said, you know, we need migrant workers to come in and, and build up this region, to build up these countries, but we want to tie their employment um, to their immigration status. And so therefore they wouldn't have the ability to, to uh, organize collectively or be able to kind of challenge their working conditions and wouldn't be able to threaten um, the indigenous, you know, population, given that they're usually a, a very small minority. So we're talking about countries in which, you know, in the UAE or in Qatar, you know, the indigenous or the, the actual native population um, is barely 10% of the population, which means you're relying entirely on a foreign workforce. And so the kafala system was meant to kind of preserve the rights of the, the government and the state to be able to kind of exert its will. And of course, this um, happened in a really exploitative way over the years. Even after independence, this was a system that was basically inherited by these states that they then 
um, using a lot of the revenues from oil and gas, especially as they began to kind of hypermodernize in a very short amount of time. You can imagine the kind of the level of exploitation and the toll that this would take on the workforce that was bearing that burden. And of course, over the years, it's come into criticism, um, especially given the fact that all of a sudden you have this massive demand for something like, you know, seven new stadiums, a metro system, a, you know, a new airport, a road system, hotels, all the kinds of infrastructure that would be necessary to build the country up for the World Cup. And it so seems, people began to look at... Right. Yeah, go ahead. Adam. No, I just want to say, it seemed like they're building what would a country would build, for example, in 100 years, in the amount of 10 years. So... Uh, yeah, while the number is just while the number of deaths yeah were uh, seemed high, um, but imagine over a period of you know if you built the same if you compare it to even you know construction in the United States or other places, um, you know we're here in Tampa and I think uh, I read that um, over the last two months two different people were killed in construction sites uh, I believe somewhere in Florida I'm not sure again if it's in Tampa or not but. Construction safety and, and building, you know, people do, um, these uh, accidents do happen. Um, I'm not sure if it's necessarily just privy just to Qatar, but if they're doing all of, if they're building so much so fast, uh, these types of things happen. But we did see horrific images of people being in labor camps, et cetera, and they're not getting uh, paid much. Uh, but that might have been just a businessmen being, you know, exploiting workers, not necessarily government policy. But, uh, and I want you to comment on all of this once, once you get a chance. Uh, but I also believe that they actually got rid of the kafela system. Yeah, so beginning in 2017, um, you know, so I, I would say you kind of have to divide up the response to the campaign for labor rights in, in a couple of different phases. I think the initial phase was very defensive, was very much about trying to, to kind of you know, issue cosmetic statements, but also to kind of push back against some of the criticisms. And it was only, you know, later on, um, as a lot of the, the kind of the research and the studies was beginning to show the extent of it. And at the same time here, I think we have to be cautious because even some of the things that you mentioned, as many of my colleagues who've been doing this research here for many years, and aren't just the kind of, you know, parachute journalist who sort of just like came in, um, but we're actually reporting on this stuff going back much earlier, have shown that a lot of the actual things that have been reported at places like The Guardian and elsewhere um, were either exaggerations or were things that were not really rooted. In fact, The Guardian at one point had to recant um, some of the death tolls and things of that sort. But again, it's it's kind of a shame that we end up getting into these discussions because then this takes away from the seriousness of the issues that are still very much present. So we're not talking about kind of some of the more sensationalist reporting, but we are talking about a situation in which workers, um, you know, don't have the opportunity to change jobs without the permission of their employer or complain about wage theft of not being paid their wages on time or lacking a minimum wage or, you know, those are the kinds of serious issues that are kind of systemic and have been here for some time. But beginning in 2017 and largely in response to uh, the blockade, actually, that Qatar was subjected to by its neighbors during this kind of major, you know, uh, falling out within the GCC countries, that Qatar felt uh, free in a way to be able to pursue certain reforms without having to be accountable to its neighbors, which were pursuing similar policies. And so they more or less dismantled the kafata system, at least in name, in terms of allowing workers to change, um, you know, their sponsors without permission, 
guaranteeing a minimum wage, um, even opening up the visa requirements to 70 new nationalities, which of course allowed for better family reunification for workers, uh, among other things. And so there was a sense of kind of easing some of these conditions that have been there. But I think what's often lost in these conversations is the fact that, as I think you kind of alluded to a little bit there, is that this isn't just about the state. And I think this is where so much of the analysis gets it wrong, that what we're seeing in Qatar is playing out is basically the kind of extreme version of, you know, the kind of the global flow of, of capital and labor that animates the entire global economy that has repercussions uh, right. throughout Western countries where all of this money that's actually being reaped as revenues is going into. Um, and that, you know, in many ways that is actually mimicking a model that's been at work that has developed, you know, most of Europe and, and the United I'm, States as well. Right. I mean, you know, who built, uh, rebuilt Europe after, um, you know, World War II, et cetera. And uh, the, the thing that irked me is that they were treating Qatar as this like evil country. And they're like basically the smallest country in almost the smallest country in the world. Um, the same criticism wasn't happening when Russia hosted the World Cup or when China hosted the Olympics. And they have, a, you know, a horrific human rights record. Um, you know, you don't see... When was the last time that Qatar bombed anybody or actually went to war and invaded other countries um, as opposed to uh, Russia, for example? And uh, the same type of criticism uh, and um, attacks were not there uh, about human rights. So it seemed like it was very selective um, and timed that way. Saudi Arabia, which is right next door, which has a, a you know much worse human rights record, the same, you know, the same countries that were criticizing Qatar uh, didn't have a problem doing business, uh, for example, uh, with the Saudis. So, uh, did the or the or the UAE for that or the I UAE mean, you know, the athletic? Yeah, exactly. The athletic, uh, which which is an online sports uh, website, for instance, you know, what has has been kind of leading the charge in a lot of ways with these critical articles. And then next thing you know, there's an article about Dubai and how amazing it is that all of these European football clubs are doing their kind of winter camps. And this, and I mean, the entire article read as just kind of a commercial for the UAE, in a way that doesn't bring up a single one of the same exact issues, which are just as present. But I think what's important here, again, so that we don't sort of end up in this position of like, well, you know, Qatar should be excused from all of these critiques because these other countries aren't being subjected to, is to say that, in fact, it's the opposite: is that there are legitimate reasons to be critical of things here in the lead up to the World Cup and beyond, but. You know, but we don't see that happening consistently enough in a way that that would be taken seriously. And so, I think this is why it's been so easy to deflect from so, the kind of legitimate issues that actually do exist. Is it a, more of a double standard or is it rooted, rooted in racism? Is it Islamophobia? Is it, you know, orient, Orientalism? What's really at the root of this or is it a confluence of all of those? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think there's certainly elements that you see the language that gets used in some of these, some of this reporting tends to very much rely on cultural arguments in a way that's not really necessary. I mean, you can make just as easily the same case to say, you know, we, I mean, for instance, right now, many of the journalists who've been leading this charge um, are from the UK, and you're having major labor actions taking place, some of them historic, right in the UK, and yet whenever the Qatar situation gets talked about it's happening in a really kind of exoticized way uh, in a way that tends to ignore the fact that that there are deep questions and problems and crises um, that are existent everywhere including in, in many of the home countries of many of the journalists who are doing this kind of work 
but it's the way that the language gets used. It's the kind of the, the extremely hyperbolic and sensationalist um, tone that gets employed. It's the way that there's a complete lack of nuance. Um, you know, among these, many of them, of course, are people who've not actually been to the region, who haven't talked to scholars of the region, who haven't actually looked at any of the research that's been produced about any of these issues for a very long time. And so there tends to be kind of a very reductionist way of looking at this that I think in some ways just is, is rooted in that kind of, you know, racialization of this region and, and of its people. And at the same time, as part of an overarching kind of, um, you know, project that we've seen that, that has demonized Qatar that goes back maybe to the blockade days when there was an active lobby, you know, sponsored by the the, the Saudi government and the UAE that sort of did its its job. At one point, I think there was a report in the UK that, you know, there were consulting firms that were responsible for inserting um, news coverage of a specific slant. And I think a lot of that did carry over as well. Um, so there there are a number of these kinds of, of issues, I think, that explain the level um, that we've seen. But again, as I've been saying, I don't think that's reason enough to say that we should completely avoid all critique. I think there are still legitimate issues. It's just unfortunate that many of the, the kind of the most vocal um, critics tend to be the ones that are the least consistent or or haven't been as accurate, for instance, in, in some of the, the coverage. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with your host, Ahmed and Samar. I'm speaking to Abdullah Larian, a professor of history at Georgetown University in uh, Qatar. And we're speaking about the World Cup uh, that's being held in Qatar uh, for the first time uh, in an Arab uh, or Middle Eastern country. And the controversy and attacks that Qatar faced uh, before that, or leading up to it, and including now, we uh, want to talk a little bit uh, later about what the experience has been like being in Doha, being in Qatar for this World Cup, this historic event, and also um, about some of the political statements and non-political statements that are being that's happening out of there and some of the reactions. But uh, first, there is a song that's supposed to, that's uh, called the FIFA official fan anthem and uh, I'm not really sure how it goes but they have this toka uh, taka thing going on uh, maybe you can help us with it after we hear it Abdullah <laughs> Tu cu tu 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 t
Welcome back to True Talk on uh, WMNF 8.5. Um, the song, uh, how do you say it, Abdullah? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's Tugataka, but Tug- I, Tug- I can't claim to be the expert. This is Nicki Minaj and uh, Maluma. Uh, not exactly, um, you know, I mean, <laughs> uh, it's this is the, I guess, you know, what's playing there. And they have all these concerts. It's it's not what it's not turning out to be what the um i guess western media or european or uk media has been pushing it out to be there's some sort of you know um uh, hell in the desert uh, for these players uh, i want to turn it over to summer uh who has some questions um uh, for you summer go ahead uh, good morning, our listeners. This is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. Ahmed and I are talking to Abdullah Al-Haryan, who is a history professor at Georgetown University in Qatar. He's also the editor of a very interesting book, Football in the Middle East, State Society and the Beautiful Game. Uh, Abdullah, I enjoyed very much uh, reading your uh, opinion piece. I think it was published on November 18 of this year. and. Uh, in the New York Times, and it's uh, the title was Why the World Cup Belongs in the Middle East. And you dr- bring a different perspective into this whole uh, uh, issue of um, what here in the U.S. call it soccer, <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. football in the Arab world. You say that it is... It like you argue that it should be held in the Arab world and in the Middle East for many reasons, but you also mention that uh, the colonials are the ones that brought the game into that part of the world. Could you address that point in particular? Yeah, I mean, I I think you know to to bring both of those points together. I think the idea first is to deny the idea that the Middle East could ever be a home for a tournament like the World Cup is to deny the very history um, you know, of colonization and of the way that the game has been transmitted, right? So we think of, of the sport as being largely a European invention that gets passed on um, and gets you know, perfected and, and personalized in various ways throughout the course of you know, the 20th century in places like Latin America, Argentina, Brazil being, of course, major powerhouses. Um, but then we we kind of completely lose sight of the fact that just as as explicit was the colonial attention to um, physical education that saw it introduce um, you know the sport uh, in places like Egypt by the British or in Algeria by the French um, or even in a place like Qatar, for instance, where in the 1940s um, you know the the oil workers established their own you know, amateur football clubs, and they would play against the British officials who were present. Um, you know, this is 20 years before Qatar even becomes an independent state. And so there is that kind of rich history of having both, you know, conveyed this this sport to local populations in a kind of civilizing mission, right? That they believe that instituting discipline, structure, having rules, having physical fitness being kind of exemplified in the course of playing this game was the way to create new model citizens in the places that these European countries colonized. But of course, what they don't anticipate is the fact that just as easily as you can use the game to instill certain kinds of colonial values in a population, you can also, you know, the population can also then take that game and sort of internalize it in different ways, that it becomes a source of identity, a way to assert collective action, uh, a way to assert national claims for independence. 
And this is what we actually start to see. And so a lot of the earlier clubs that were formed, the leagues that were formed throughout the Arab region, um, tended to be very much connected to the anti-colonial struggles and the way that they managed to actually gain their independence. So, for instance, I mentioned the example of Algeria, where the FLN, um, you know, the, the independence movement, the nationalist movement that was fighting against the French, formed their own independent uh, football team made up largely of Algerians who had been playing in France, who abandoned their successful, comfortable careers in the French leagues to form a team that would then travel the world and be able to kind of spread awareness about Algeria's struggle for independence. And we see similar kinds of things happening in terms of the way that football becomes completely enmeshed within the kind of local, um, you know, political, social, cultural landscape um, throughout the second half of the 20th century. And so it's just kind of a way to make the case to say, you know, so when Qatar decides we want to host the World Cup, yes, we can probably point to a number of cynical reasons and kind of geopolitical and strategic reasons for why that would be the case. But there are also other reasons about why football would even have the significance in the first place that it would be seen. And I think the last you know three, four weeks have kind of borne this out of why it would be such a, a, an event that would capture the imagination of hundreds of millions of people across this region. You also mentioned, uh, Abdullah, the uh, ultras or uh, what uh, is known as the football fan groups. I think um, people who care about de democratization or freedom uh, of expression, which is really not that available in the Arab world and um, or for instance, in uh, Iran, um, these fans are the ones who have the capacity to sing songs against the um, political status quo. Could you address that? Because I think especially Algeria and Morocco, they have these songs that they play during the games that are extremely critical of the political established order. Can you explain to our American um, audience and listeners who are not used to the idea of ultras, what is that, how they, for instance, participated in uh, the Arab Spring and what kind of songs do they sing? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that, um, you know, fan culture is significant everywhere and it has the potential to be political everywhere. So I don't want to also make it seem as though this is exceptional. To this region, but I, what I think it is, uh, what is interesting or exceptional is the fact that it's it's in many ways become an outlet, a release valve for communities, for populations that endure tremendous authoritarian conditions. Right, so they live under really repressive dictatorships that don't allow you to form a political party, that don't allow you to work, organize as workers, that don't allow you to express yourself politically in public, to protest legally. Uh, and so people find alternative modes by which to express themselves politically. And part of that is through the safety in which you already have a network. That network is made up of people who support a local team. They go out to, to games every week together. Um, they meet together in cafes outside of the stadiums, um, you know, leading up to the matches, to the important ones. And they develop a certain kind of subculture on their own. Oftentimes that's expressed in songs. Those songs are not just about what's happening on the field. Those songs are also expressing their everyday concerns and, you know, the lack of, of kind of economic opportunity or the lack of political freedom or just, you know, various other kinds of concerns, local worries that, that get expressed through these kinds of fan groups, these ultras. Um, and on occasion, 
sometimes they will come to blows with the security forces. And so, you know, in, in the course of the Arab uprisings, especially going back to 2011, 2012, um, you know, there were these kinds of confrontations where uh, mass protests would break out against the dictatorship. And it was actually these fan groups that would organize together to try to hold the line against being, um, you know, dismissed from the square and Tahrir Square, for instance. Uh, and so this this forms a certain kind of bond of solidarity that we rarely see, um, you know, materializing in other ways, considering you don't have the opportunity to form kind of your own political party or a more traditional way of expressing yourself politically. The most uh, present team that wasn't uh, really uh, participating in the uh, World Cup was Palestine. Uh, could you address that? How was Palestine constantly? and is constantly present uh, during this World Cup. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there, there's a lot to say in terms of just the, the history of this, right? So we know in some ways this wasn't so, so surprising because I think as the uprisings, again, a decade ago showed us is that the moment that populations in this region are able to express themselves out of the shadow of, you know, the major repression, the violence of the state, one of the things that they generally express themselves through is solidarity for Palestine. And so every single Arab uprising from Morocco and Tunisia to Egypt, to Yemen, to Bahrain, to Syria, um, all of them were expressing their solidarities with Palestine while they were all simultaneously fighting for their own freedom in the face of um, you know, authoritarian dictatorships. And here, yet again, in a completely different context, this time in a joyous, right, celebratory moment where we're looking at a World Cup um, where the eyes of the world are kind of, you know, watching the action, watching the upsets, the major events taking place within the stadiums. And yet again, when people felt this kind of momentary uh, relief, this idea of being able to express themselves politically everywhere you saw the flags, the chants, the armbands, um, the slogans, um, all in support of Palestine. Um, and again, uh, yes, this was largely carried by local populations or visiting populations from around this region. But we have to also emphasize that this also shows how ubiquitous globally this is, because you also saw fans from Uruguay and Brazil and Portugal and Denmark and, and every other kind of country that was participating here who were also kind of joining in unison in these chants. And I think it goes to show that when populations get together in a kind of free, unencumbered environment, that there is this kind of immediate instinctual feeling of solidarity with the oppression that Palestinians have been facing and also the fact that there's a kind of huge disconnect between what ordinary people feel toward you know the the dispossession and the continued ethnic cleansing and the apartheid conditions that Palestinians face versus what many of the governments around the world um, are doing about it in terms of their their continued support for those policies and so I think this is yet another um, element in terms of how we might think about football as a space that does offer a little bit more of an, a level playing field, so to speak, or a, an opportunity for people to sort of voice their opinions in a kind of a democratic space, despite all of the other kinds of things that we know about football in terms of it being, you know, corporatized, imposed from above. Obviously, we know that none of this is sort of like FIFA sanctioned, but once the environment is there, you know, people are going to use it to express themselves. Uh, actually, Ahmed, you, uh, sorry, Abdullah, you also uh, mentioned uh, that uh, having it held in Qatar gave a chance to so many uh, people from the south 
to afford to come and uh, travel uh, to Qatar. But I want to stay with this um, this trend of thought, but not necessarily now on Palestine, but really on expressing um, like uh, like uh, sujood uh, supplication uh, for instance the moroccan team or if one of the team uh, members raises uh, his second uh, finger like uh, saying uh, you, you know you you and i know we are, he is pointing to god which was done by other uh, uh, non-Muslim, non-Arab players, but for instance, uh, German TV was associate. One of the Germ uh, famous German TVs was associating these expressions of religiosity with uh, uh, ISIS. Uh, can you like why? Why is this uh, hypocrisy? For instance, so many people showed Messi, a very famous uh, international player, also pointing his uh, finger uh, towards uh, God. Why this uh, amazing um, hypocrisy or double standard? Is it, is it jealousy that, you know, everything comes from the West, everything that is bright? Uh, for instance, the BBC did not even air uh, the uh, opening ceremony, which is a customary for every BBC to show. They never, for instance, banned the opening ceremony in China in spite of China's human rights violations. I know you mentioned that uh, a, a bit uh, and you said it's a combination of all, but is it, is it the way, is it like we are the gatekeepers? We are the center of the universe. We are uh, Europe and we don't allow other people to take it from us. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a kind of a, a claim of ownership, a, a sense of entitlement that I think um, permeates throughout, which is why, by the way, I would say that even when you look across the U.S. and the European media, I think the European media has been far more egregious, for instance, and that's probably because of that kind of sense of, of entitlement um, and that sense of superiority, and at the core of it, of course, is racism. I mean, it's it's pretty clear in the way that a lot of this has been depicted. I think you know there was the the really infamous moment where the the BBC also had a commentator, Jurgen Klinsmann, who is a German uh, former football coach of the United States, who's now a commentator on on TV, um, who made incredibly racist comments uh, about uh, you know Latin Americans, about the Iranian national team. Um, and, it, you know, it's the kind of thing that if, if it were said, you know, about other groups could have easily gotten somebody fired. And instead, this sort of just passes as, as just kind of very normal uh, observation. And then I think you mentioned some of the other examples from German TV. Um, and so, I, you know, it's in some ways, it's not surprising only because we see a lot of the ugliness come out. I mean, these are the kinds of events and the kind of moments that that bring both the best and the worst. And I think we've seen both of those over the course of the last month. We've seen the worst in terms of some of the the level, as you said, as you pointed out really well about, you know, the level of, of kind of deeply seated, racialized ways of looking at, at just the behavior of fans, the behavior of the teams, of the players, um, the way that their performance is being judged, the way that they're even their, their kind of, you know, emotional and, and spiritual and, um, you know, even just kind of their play is being analyzed. Um, purely through the lens of their faith or, or their, you know, ethnic or national backgrounds. Um, and at the same time, I think we've also seen an incredible, um, you know, moment of unity, of cohesion, 
of setting aside differences, of breaking down certain barriers, um, that has also kind of you know made this really really a beautiful uh, event in a lot of ways. And I think this is this is kind of always the juxtaposition moment. You do see both of those things. This is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Summer speaking to Abdullah Laryan about uh, the FIFA World Cup happening for the first time in an Arab and Middle Eastern country. Doha, Qatar. We'll be right back uh, right after this song. Back on uh, True Talk on WMNF with uh, Ahmed and Samar and Abdullah Laryan, who is joining us live from Doha, Qatar, um, from the heart of the uh, World Cup. You've attended some games. What is it like uh, to have been there? What's the experience like? What's the country like? How many people actually came into Doha for this um, for this World Cup? Uh, I'm not sure if you've attended any other previous World Cups to compare it to, but what has the experience been like? Yeah, I mean, I, I've never been to a World Cup before, but, um, you know, it's hard to imagine it being kind of a, a more, you know, vibrant and immersive experience in a way. I mean, this, the, you know, Qatar uh, was expecting something like 1.2 million people to be here at the, at the kind of the height of it, which would have been the group stages. When you had 32 countries all competing at the same time, um, I mean, logistically, things were running really smoothly. I think people really um, appreciated having the kind of the public transportation options. Um, the roads were not as congested as, as a lot of people, especially locals, feared. Um, but there was just such a, a kind of a you know vibrant atmosphere of people interacting and, and kind of talking to one another from so many different countries. Um, I've definitely been to a lot of football atmospheres where that wasn't the case, where you definitely had much more kind of visible hostilities and rivalries. And here it's like you can have people from Argentina and Mexico and Brazil all kind of, you know, talking to one another. And, and there was just something kind of interesting about um, also the interactions with local populations and people who um, were here obviously to see not just Qatar, but, but you know, Saudi Arabia and, and Tunisia and Morocco, um, which all were kind of given a sort of home home field uh, treatment because they have so many populations here, so many local communities, as well as those who came from outside 
I mean, the, the atmosphere at some of those matches, I would say, was by far the most electric seeing, you know, the fans of Morocco at the, at the last uh, two or three matches, especially when they were winning against big odds um, going up against Spain and then Portugal. Um, you know, I've never seen an atmosphere like that in terms of just how unified the stadium was, how excited everybody was on their feet for 90 minutes, you know, chanting and cheering and singing together, um, which, of course, carried over into the into the markets into the streets into the you know the coordination to like all of the different fan zones that have been set up so there's something kind of you know really incredible about that especially when you consider the fact that not everybody who was cheering on uh the moroccan team as they made it all the way to the semi-final um were, were just moroccans i mean this these were people from you know dozens of countries really from across this region from across africa from across south asia as well um, I mean, it's so a beautiful, a uh, really unified spirit. It's also yeah. because uh, of the Cinderella story of Morocco, the you know first African country, Arab country to make it so far into the World Cup. Yeah, I mean they they really um, made history here. I think, and and I think going forward, there will always be um, a sense now that this isn't something that should be an exception, but going forward, we should expect a lot more parity among different continents, among countries representing different parts of the world that we normally think of immediately as an underdog. And I think, you know, uh, Morocco's coach has been very good to emphasize that over and over again, that they're not just, you know, lucky to be here, or happy to be here, but they were competing to the end. And I think for anyone who watched them compete against France, despite the fact that they ultimately uh, lost uh, in in that semifinal match, but you know you could argue that they were the better team for most of that game. You're right. Um, that they yeah. were scared by the moment. That they that they really stepped up and uh, and and you know really were ready to to kind of fight until um, they made it to the final. The open uh, one of the first matches was this huge upset uh, against Argentina by Saudi Arabia. What was the mood like in? Um, Qatar. I was. I mean, even though Saudi Arabia led this uh, this blockade against Qatar, it seems like Qatar went out of their ways to be very hospitable to the Saudis and to the Crown Prince MBS. Um, and it, you know, they're really people were really celebrating the win. It seemed authentic. Yeah, I mean, you know, these things tend to tend to operate at two levels, right? So on one level, of course, it's the level of like the political leaders, and you know, there's a lot of jockeying and, and being strategic in terms of how to deal with it exactly as you mentioned i mean there was a sense of like for the time being putting aside these differences or maybe using this moment as an opportunity to kind of turn the page in those relationships despite the fact that like a lot of the really deep-seated issues have never really been resolved um, between them but separately from that i think what we saw happening was not in any way um you know connected necessarily to what was happening on the elite level i think mm -hmm. people you know, just feeling happy in that moment for the Saudi players, for the idea that you had an Arab team that was competing with pride and that was like really, um, you know, showing that it can actually stand to, to one of the, the toughest teams possible, to a team that now has just made it to the final, to a team that possibly has one of the greatest players of all time. Um, you know, and, and so everyone kind of felt that euphoria in the moment. I mean, I, I was certainly surprised to see Saudi flags being waved all over Doha mm -hmm. um, by, by people who are not Saudi. It was, it was definitely a strange moment for those kind of 48 hours or however long it was until Saudi lost their next game and kind of came came back down to earth a little bit. But <laughs> yeah. in that moment, I mean, you know, people people I think were really just 
happy to, to kind of seize on any occasion uh, to celebrate and to feel a sense of pride and to kind of see themselves in the success of these teams, whether it was Saudi early on or, or Morocco until just yesterday. This is the first World Cup uh, where the at the uh, stadiums, uh, there was no alcohol, there's no beer. It was actually reversed last minute, um, you know, on the eve of, um, you know, like a, a, a few days before the World Cup uh, started. Um, what was it like being in a stadium without alcohol? I mean, uh, people are not drinking, and these are a lot of them are usually used to, like especially the um, the British, uh, the you know, uh, teams. Um, it kind of goes hand in hand, and the European teams, it, a lot of these um, ultras, they get drunk and they get rowdy and stuff. So, what was it like? Did you feel a different atmosphere? I'm not sure if you're used to attending games in Europe or not, or or you can compare the two, or at least, you know, games in the U.S. Yeah. when you were here. Right. No, I mean, you know, that's one of the funny things is I think despite all of the outrage from people who are upset about the last-minute decision to pull the alcohol, that's actually not an unprecedented thing to happen, even in, in the Italian World Cup, even in the German uh, World Cup in the past. There were bans on alcohol sales exactly for the same kinds of reasons, which was to end fan violence, to to kind of, you know, respond to uh, the possibility that there was going to be kind of a crisis breaking out in terms of, of fan culture, fan behavior. And so I think this was done a little bit preemptively in a way to avoid it. But of course, here, because you're talking about it happening in the context of a Muslim country, that there are greater sensitivities around whether, you know, this is being done as a, as a way for cultural reasons in addition to those. But what I can say is I think, you know, this was by far the most I guess you could say family-friendly affair, right? The idea that, you know, you could really see, um, you know, women and children and entire families and grandparents, all of them kind of coming out to enjoy a match um, and not to feel uncomfortable based on, you know, the, the kind of toxic uh, male, you know, drunk behavior that we're used to seeing in, in the kinds of, you know, context that you've mentioned before. Um, I mean, I think and that that was probably a treat for a lot of people who otherwise would have felt pretty uncomfortable um, being there. And I think, you know, this this kind of changed um, the the vibe a little bit going forward from from those kind of early games um, to where people started to say, you know what, I've been like, it's really comfortable. It's fun. Um, and by the way, this was the case, not just among local populations, but even among many of the people who came to visit. If you talk to fans in the stadium, outside the stadium, um, they'll all tell you that in the end they think it was the right decision because it allowed them to kind of feel not just safe and comfortable going into the match, but even just kind of strolling around the streets, being around in the fan zones, um, you know, just feeling like the, the festive atmosphere carries over without there having to be that kind of like extra, um, you know, concern about kind of, you know, the excess drinking and the sort, the sort of the few who spoil it for everybody else um, was not really a factor here. Right. I um there was this um um article actually in Reuters um where I don't know if they have the clip here where they actually talked about how female fans are feeling safer um feel safe at Qatar World Cup and that you know they uh, think it, you know because of reduced alcohol consumption. So Many women and these were like people from Argentina, uh, from Europe, from the UK that were commenting on how they felt so much safer. Because usually when they go, I guess some of these matches, they get harassed by men that are drunk, etc. And um, 
they they felt much safer. So yeah, and you could see in the stands too. There's a lot of women that were participating, uh, both you know Arab women mixed. You know, there was just like you said, it's a family friendly. Um, before we go, I wanted to also ask you about. Uh, you know, there was this, also this issue about not allowing LGBTQ or you know the rainbow flag being flown and stopping people from going in. Did that end end up being an issue there? I mean, or or how has that been handled? Especially, you know, that was part of the attacks that was used as some of the justifications. Some of the team captains had this uh, plan to uh, European team captains that were going to wear this armband called One Love. And they ended up backing down after FIFA made some, you know, uh, that there may be some consequences. Uh, what is your opinion on that, and how was it handled? Did it ever become an issue at the end, or? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that it became uh, an issue in the sense that I think so much of that coverage, once again, was happening in a way that was very preemptive, right? So it wasn't people who were writing specifically about what was happening here, but it was about what people were anticipating which was a kind of an incredibly intolerant, repressive, unsafe atmosphere in a way that didn't actually materialize. So we never ended up seeing the kind of the level of, of repression and massive widespread, you know, um, crackdowns that people expected. And, and again, for anybody who knows this place, who knows this region, who, who's either lived here, worked here, visited or anything, they could have told you that for years, right? Because we know that, you know, the way that people talk about these kinds of issues on paper is very distinct from the lived experiences of communities out here, right? So there's there's one thing, you know, like the really lazy journalism is the one that kind of will will go online and search for, you know, what are what are the legal codes say about X, Y, and Z issue, and is that going to be the thing that's that's facing those communities? And so we know that obviously that's not the way that the lived experience actually gets carried out as far as whether we're talking about, you know, the rights of, of LGBTQ communities or on a number of other, you know, issues of concern for women or for, you know, religious minorities. I mean, these are the kinds of, that list goes on and the, the types of things that people were trying to raise. Abdullah, we're actually out guy, of time now, so huh? I'm sorry to cut sure. you off, but thank you so much for joining us. This yeah. is WMNF Tampa. Have a great weekend. Uh, NPR News is next.